I'd like you to take your Bibles, join me over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'd also like the lights to be dimmed. Warren, if you can turn these lights off here, we will be using the PowerPoint <clears throat> this morning. And we don't need to uh, dim the overhead lights because I want to make sure you can still read your Bibles. Because that's how people deceive you. They tell you something's in there and it's not. And then you go, I'll just take their word for it. This is happening. It's been happening ever since Jesus ascended. And it's so important for us to recognize proper use of terms and to be able to spot error. You've heard this illustration over and over again. But if you want to understand what real currency is from fake currency, you study all the aspects of a real bill. You know what that real bill looks like so that when something comes across and it doesn't look like the real bill, you only need to spot one thing, maybe two, and you can go, that's not the real deal. Now, I know many of you here are mature Christians. You understand these things that I'm talking about. But I would say, even of the mature Christians, I don't think you know how severely subtle words have been twisted. And I say that because I have a Bible college education. I've studied the Scripture, I would say, at, at, a, at a serious academic, scholastic level for almost 10 years. And still, even in the past few months, as I have read how words have been redefined, I am still learning something new. There's always some type of twist to what God has plainly and simply said. God says things plainly and simply because that's how he wants to say them. Amen? He's not trying to be the gatekeeper of salvation. He's not trying to have you perform a certain level of head knowledge or just getting to a certain academic plane for you to be able to finally understand these things. He's made it available to everybody. I have led people to Christ in a five-minute discussion. That's not a pat on my back. That's a praise God for the simplicity of salvation. Amen? Christ did all the work. And it's not a sin to lead somebody to Christ in five minutes. I've heard pastors say that. Well, you can't really expect a person to know all the things they need to know to get saved in five minutes. What would be the barrier? Do we have to see them perform something for, for us to validate it? Hello, that's a problem. That's, that's a big problem. We've now become the one who redefines what God has already clearly said. And that's something that the Scripture warns of, and I want you to see these things here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look in verses 3 and 4. But I fear, Paul had a legitimate concern, lest by any means... As the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be com uh, corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I want you to see a couple of things here. The word beguiled, the word subtlety, and the word simplicity. I learned in college the principle of first use. If you want to see how a word is used in Scripture, one way that you can do it is go back and go to the earliest use of the word. And as a matter of fact, in your Schofield Bible, that middle column there is all about first use, first mention principle. Now, sometimes that's something that is a fruitless endeavor because words are used so often that it, 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 it changes um, in, in the way that it's used. But most of the time, it's pretty good use. The first time you see that word subtle is in Genesis chapter 3, and it's a description of the, ser of the serpent. None of us wake up, and all of a sudden, our, our roof is totally caved in. Usually, if you see you have a bad roof, there's a little drip-drip. 
And then you notice somewhere else you go, hmm, these are warning signs that something is not right. But you're not in the middle of the night and all of a sudden, you know, somebody wakes you up and says, we want you to know there's a very small, inconsistent drip in the laundry room behind the dryer. We want you to know that this is a sign you have a bad roof. Most of the time, it's subtle. You don't hear it, you don't see it until all of a sudden something major happens to get your attention. That's a comparison that Paul is qualifying his fear. He says, I am concerned that through a very subtle nature, you who have already believed will be deceived from, and that last word I want you to see is simplicity. It is simple. The gospel is simple, easily understood. It's also very easily corrupted by false teachers. Look in verse 4. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. It's saying you bring these false teachers in to add to yourself knowledge, but you don't realize you're bringing in the poison that will poison your growth and the lost person's ability to get saved. Look in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, in, chapter, or, uh, in verse 1, there's a real strong statement made about these false teachers. They're compared, they're compared to false prophets. By the way, if a false prophet who was claiming to be someone who spoke for God was found to be a liar, he was to be killed. Well, that's, that's not love. That's not, you know, that, that's not right. I think it's understandable and accurate because that's how people get deceived. And that's what God said is the punishment. Now, I'm not saying we go around and execute all the false teachers today. That's, that's not my comparison. But my comparison is it is deadly to teach anything outside of what the Bible says is accurate for salvation. This is not, well, you got there your way and I'm going to get there my way. Folks, we're talking about the difference between eternal life and eternal death. This is a, this is a big deal. And this is how Peter describes these people. But... 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people in Israel. Even as there shall be. They're coming in. They're not here yet. Well, they're here now. The time of this writing was beginning. All of these things. They were coming in. There shall be false teachers among you. Who's you here? Those who have believed. They're going to come in. Who privily. What do you mean to privily? Privately. They're not coming in with a big sign that says, False teacher, beware. They're coming in looking like me, talking like me. Oh yeah, Jesus, faith alone and Christ alone. Well, what do you mean by faith? Watch, you'll, you'll see this today in the, in the PowerPoint in a moment here. Who privily shall bring in, ooh, the heresies are qualified. Damnable heresies. Even denying the Lord that bought them and bring up themselves swift destruction. And many, many, shall follow their pernicious ways. Many of you, if you're not careful, it'll grab you by the nose and pull you right along into it. You'll start saying things like this of clear Bible teaching. You'll go, it's not enough. I need more. I need meat. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I'd probably have at least like 20 or $25. It is so commonly said about this church. You, you're not meet there. 
Oh, yeah, they know the wallet, they know the gospel, but we need the deep things of God. You start thinking like that, you need to make sure the ways that you're following are accurate with the Scripture. They'll run to the language, right? They'll go in the Greek, in the Hebrew, and we do that too, but we just help you see the simplicity of it, even in that language. But they'll go, no, 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 you need a six-year education. You need to be fluent in Koine Greek so that you can understand Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let me ask you a question. If that's accurate, what's the point of trying to lead kids to Christ? Seriously. We could look at what Jesus said and say, well, you know, it doesn't really mean make it as easy for a child. You could look at a five-year-old who understands their need for a Savior, that their sin separates them from God, and that all they have to do is put their trust in Jesus Christ. You can look at that kid and say, but you don't know enough. That's a, I'm not on board with that. Unhitch the train at that point. But that's what's going to happen. They want you to follow in these pernicious ways. Look at the first half of verse 3 here. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. I I love that description. They want you, not because they care about you, but they want the attention. Isn't it true? You go open up any social media app and everybody's trying to get their attention. I remember when I looked through my parents' photographs, you know, they would take photographs of places and things. And if they were photographing someone else, it was to capture the moment around them. It's like nowadays, everybody puts themselves in 90% of the frame, right? I'm eating lunch. You know, and there's maybe like a corner of a sign and there's my big old face and they're like, you know, our kids are going to go through our photos and go, there's dad, there's dad, there's dad. What's he doing? He's taking pictures of himself. There's dad, there's dad, there's dad. You know, it's like, it's, I think it's an accurate reflection of what's going on in our culture. Me, 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 look at me. It, it's all about that. And this is what these false teachers do. Me, 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 look at my doctrine. Look at my books. Look at my understanding. Follow me. They covet your attention because they thirst off it. They feed off that power. You'll see in a moment. i got two quotes up here, and I know they're going to be real tiny and hard to see, but I'll read them for you. It's shocking what some people believe real salvation is, real saving faith is. All right, I'm going to get this loaded up here. Uh, Exit. Right here. All right, so we are in part two of what is saving faith. We are going to specifically focus on this word saving. We've already defined faith, and this is as a refresher, a reminder of what we did two weeks ago. Faith is the assurance or confidence in some stated or implied truth. So then, just specifically, saving faith must be assurance or confidence in the gospel. So now, the center issue is what is the gospel? Okay, so just saving faith occurs when one accepts as true the propositions of Jesus Christ, the propositions that Jesus Christ alone, the Son of God, who died and rose again, paid for his, I've got that all in in caps there because I want to delineate, it's not Jesus' sin, it's paid for the person's sin, paid for his penalty and has given him eternal life. Period. LOL. It's really that simple. To understand what saving faith is, 
It is to understand the propositions of Jesus Christ are true. That it's that simple. Can a child understand that? Yes. If you, if you can discipline a child, they know the difference between right and wrong. So they can understand that all the wrong that they do separates them from God, but God loves them. And instead of them dying and being separated from him in hell, he's offered Jesus as their substitute. And you use words that are clearly understood. And if they simply believe in him, they'll have eternal life. They'll go to heaven. You want to phrase it so that they can understand. But if a child can get that, would you qualify their assurance or confidence, faith, as saving? Yes. Why? Because it's not the fact that they have faith. It's not the attitude of their faith. It is the object which saves them. What is the object of our faith? Jesus Christ alone. That's what saves. I like the phrase faith alone, but I like to add in Christ alone because that's what we are putting our assurance and confidence in. And the goodness of God says, when you believe, you immediately receive. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, that's good. I like that. We're on the same level here. And I I thought about the period with the LOL thing. I thought maybe that's too sarcastic, but it's kind of funny. So, (laughs) yeah, you know. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. You know these verses, but I want you to understand what the Bible says because when we're going to look at the the redefinition, you're going to start to see where these things depart from the basic teachings in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 13, this is on page 1250, if you're using a loaned Bible, which is a Schofield Bible. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye, now there's a pattern here that I want you to note, heard the word of truth. The word of truth is now clarified. By the way, just look up here for a moment. When you see commas, periods, chapter divisions, verse numbers, those are added by the translators, not because something is unclear, but to show the path of thinking in the original language. So very clearly here, the Holy Spirit believed the the word of truth had to be defined, because word of truth could be anything. I use this illustration all the time. Geico has a word of truth for you. It's good news. You could call it the gospel of Geico. What is it? 15 minutes or less could save you 15% or more on car insurance. That's what they're saying is, this is true. So when you call and you say, hi, I would like to save 15% or more in less than 15 minutes, they're going to try and meet that need for you. Is that the word of truth that's being described here? I'm not talking about saving on car insurance. Or that if you switch to Spectrum, you can get one mobile line for free? That's not what he's talking about. The word of truth here is clarified. Look what it says. The gospel, again, gospel just means good news. Could be anything. What is it more explicitly defined as? Of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye, what? Believed. What happened? Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. 
<coughs> excuse me, 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until, ooh, ooh, this is, your ticket is valid until. Okay, so I want to know, is it valid until I sin really, really, really badly? You know, like root for Florida State or something, like really bad. I would do a Georgia joke, but we're just being dominated by those guys, so I can't. Really, really badly? Or is there a different type of expiration date, so to speak? It says here, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption. This is until dad comes and gets us, folks. We're saved through and through. Why? Because we believed on him. We placed our assurance or confidence in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's nice. Look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. It's on page 1196. I was just talking with a gentleman on the phone this week, and we went through this verse. One of the questions he asked was, if Jesus died for all the sins of all the world and God has accepted that payment, then why do people still go to hell? It's a valid question. The Reformation said that, well, he didn't die for all the sins of all the world. He died for the elect. This is the L in TULIP, and it stands for limited atonement, limited covering, that the death of Jesus Christ was only for those who would believe. But that is not true. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, they redefine that. They say, well, well hang on. That's too clear. So we've got to get really complicated with that. And I, I say that as you know a joke, but also it's a sad truth. That's what happens. People just get so twisted on this stuff. But the reason why the sin payment is not applied to everybody is because there is an expectation. You must believe. You must put your assurance or confidence in Jesus Christ. Now, some would say it's the act of believing, and then they'll focus on the word act and say, believing is a work. It's got to be something that we do. Well, the Scripture has clarified that for us here in Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but what? Believeth, a version of pistuo, we studied that a couple weeks ago, on him, so the assurance or confidence is in Christ, that justified the ungodly, his faith is what? Counted for righteousness. Now, I did not go, I chose not to go deeply into this next thing, so I'm going to give you kind of like a Cliff Notes version. There is a case to be made that the word faith in many uses in the New Testament could better have been used as belief. The reason why I don't go deep into that is because it's hard for me to be able to explain it with a knowledge of the Greek. But basically here, the the word faith has been weaponized today to, to include a person's discipleship, include a person's commitment to the Lord in their actions. You say we're in the faith, right? And Paul used this in 2 Corinthians 13, to a degree, I think it's correct there because of the line of questioning contextually, but here, it would have been a great use of the word belief. Your belief. 
Your faith in Christ, what? Is counted, that's a cre- it means credited, for what? Righteousness. Okay? Acts 13, 38, and 39. We know this one. Paul's teaching in the synagogues. He's going in. He's not leaving anything unknown. By the way, if he's going into a synagogue, who will be his primary audience? Jewish people. Be it known unto you, this is on page 1167, Acts 13, 38 through 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. What's the message to be received? That your sins can be forgiven. (coughs) And by him, all that what? Pistuo, believe. Are what? Justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So there's even a comparison here. Belief is the qualifier. Belief in what? Because you know what? A lot of the Jews that were in that synagogue, they were faithful people. They believed in certain things. So we can't just say, just believe. Believe in something, the object, which Paul is proclaiming here to be Jesus. They get justified, and there's a specific delineation that they're justified from everything, specifically everything that you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Every year, the priest would have to go in and offer three sacrifices, one for himself, one for the people, and one for the sin of the entire camp. This is Why does he have to do this over and over and over if that was sufficient? And that's the case in Hebrews 6, 7, 8, and 9. goes through that really well. Look at uh, 1 John chapter 5 in verse 13 and verse 20. Just as a side note, shameless plug, I'm teaching through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In the coming uh, semester, I would encourage you to consider taking it. (coughs) Verse 13 says, this is on page 1325. These things have I written unto you. I is John here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that believe on the name of the Son of God. This is the description of the group. They've already believed, specifically on Jesus Christ, that ye may know that ye have a certain kind of life, eternal life. The exercise of faith in Jesus Christ produces eternal life, the righteousness of God, the forgiveness of sins, the, he- the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, Romans 4.5, Acts 13.38 and 39, and now here we are in 1 John 5.13. But look at 20. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his son, and he, he, he gives his name, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Look in verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself, the Holy Spirit. He that believeth not God hath made him, God, a liar, because he, the individual, the sinner, believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, 
comma, there's more, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son, what does it mean to have the Son? You believe. Hath what? Life. Everlasting life, we know, from 20. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It doesn't matter what your denomination is, your cultural background, your level of commitment or expressed commitment. It's all down to what do you believe? That is saving faith. We all have faith. What is saving faith is where the faith rests. And God honors that the moment that you trust on Jesus, you're saved. Isn't that good to know? Okay, so how has this been muddied up? How do we get to this conclusion that you hear these phrases, right? Real faith. Genuine believer. True Christian. I cringe when I hear it. It's, a, it's the biggest red flag ever. They might as well just wave at themselves. Because most of the time when you hear that, they are going to change the fundamental historical definition of faith. Look up here on the screen. So we're going to talk now about how the Reformation redefined saving faith. And many of your eyes just glazed over. Don't. I want to make this as simple as I can, because it does get complicated, but we can understand this simply. So let's go topic by topic here. Reformation. What's that? It happened between 1517 and 1648, a long time ago. And it was basically a response to the Catholic Church. At this time, the Catholic Church had so weaponized salvation, doctrinal teaching, the Bible, that it was impossible for a person to be considered eternally saved and not be a part of the Catholic Church. There was this baptism of desire. And this is basically the Catholic teaching that if you're seeking, you're saved. And you find us in italics, the church, and we'll teach you. This is something interesting that I want you to understand. I didn't go into this in the other section. But there are many people that believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. There are many people that believe he's going to return to earth. There are people that believe he was born of the Virgin Mary. There are people that believe he was a real person who walked on the earth, who was God in the flesh, and those people are not saved. How? Here's why. They do not believe that his sacrificial death paid for their sins. That's the difference. This is why Matthew 7, 21, 22, and 23 is so, so scary. Because there will be people who may have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They may believe that he is their Lord, that he wants to run their lives, and he does want to, and he is the Messiah, and he did come back from the dead. But they put their faith in their works to justify them. Pastor, you're splitting hairs. No, I'm not. What Gary just read, where's Gary at? There he is, he's back there. In John, where were we? John 6? You know what their response was to eat my flesh and drink my blood? What? 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 Manna? Do I have to take a bite out of you? People were understanding it this way. 
And he later explained it. But there are a bunch of people that left. Why did Jesus speak that way? Because he knew there were people that were following him because it was like, this is the 5,000 guy. What do you mean by the 5,000? You should have seen what he had and what he made. And I'm hungry. I'm going to follow him because I can, for profit. And he's starting to expose these people. They do not have faith in him. That's the, that's the difference. So saving faith is you believe that what Christ did on the cross, he did for you. And God credits that faith with righteousness. The Catholic Church was saying, right around, and this is when Martin Luther nailed his problems to the door of the Catholic Church. There was a popular teaching called indulgences, where you could literally run out on your family, run out on your responsibilities, be a corrupt businessman, but you give 10% to the Catholic Church, we'll take care of it. It was like some fidelity account for your sins. I got all this stuff you know, in line. I really should get one of those Catholic savings accounts. I hear they pay really well. <laughs> really good returns. And that's not in the Bible, but nobody knew it wasn't in the Bible. Why? Because it was in a language they didn't understand. What was that? Latin. Now, if you thought Greek was tough and hearing me talk Greek, buckle up, folks, because we've got three Latin words here in a minute. And I'm sweating right now. I want to make sure I say it correctly. But the Reformation was the Protestant response, the, the retaliation to what the Catholic Church teaches is true, is false, and here's what it really is. So they redefined, which is corrected Catholic teaching, and they redefined the fact of saving faith. All right, now we have already looked at what saving faith means. What is it? Assurance or confidence in some stated or implied truth. That's it. No, 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 no. It's three-pronged now. I'm going to say this so that you understand. This is the common teaching in Calvinism today. What I'm about to teach you, you'll hear in the Master's Seminary. Well, don't ever go there. <laughs> but you'll hear it in John MacArthur's school. Because they think you come in stupid and you need education. Faith does not mean assurance or confidence in some stated or implied truth. That's the Catholic teaching of faith. What faith really means as a noun, is knowledge, notia, Latin word, agreement, ascensius. What do you think that means? Ascend. To what? You agree about it. Here's me ascending. Now, I'm not going to levitate. But here's me ascending. My wife says, we're going to Chili's later. Okay. I just got new knowledge. And I understand it, so I agree with it. What is that? That's assurance in some stated or implied truth. If this was it, good job, Reformation. You did it. But it's not. Ooh. Submission. Fiducia. It even sounds, ugh. Fiducia. What does this mean? It really means Agreement. But they add volitional submission, which means willful submission to the truth. How does one willfully submit to the truth? You believe it? But they don't think that way. They think, no, there's a different component, so we've got to change it. So they add this. So I'm scratching my head, right? 
and I'm getting to this conclusion. This doesn't make sense to me. If we have an instated statement, an implied proposition about Jesus Christ, that he's the Son of God who died on the cross to pay for your sins, he rose again three days later. A person gets that knowledge, and they, uh, they have agreement with it. They've ascended to where it is true for me. Because that's the difference. So then why does submission become the qualifier now? Because, because, because real faith in this definition has to include works. How do we see that? Look in Romans 10, 14 through 17. You see how subtle that is? Because, folks, if I were to say nocia, essentius, fiducia, you would go, Pastor, please explain. <laughs> and I would have to tell you what those things mean. But this is where people like MacArthur and Sproul and Washer get this idea of false conversions. Because there is something written in to their doctrinal belief that real faith is expressed in works. They have redefined the word. And this is back in 1517. Our buddy Martin Luther, he did well for a long time, but then he really bottomed out and fast. And then it led to a whole overcorrection. The Catholic Church was not teaching the truth. I'm not saying that the Catholic Church in 15, 16, and 17 was teaching correctly. They weren't. They were teaching, you've got to go do the sacraments, you've got mortal sins, venial sins, <coughs> you've got to ask for confession, and you'll be forgiven by a priest. Okay. But it was an overcorrection by the Protestant Reformation because now they've expressed this whole new thing of you don't have anything involved in it. God chose you or didn't choose you before the foundation of the world. What's the point of doing anything at that point? You know what that would mean? If God is sovereign over every single decision that man makes in, in, in the sense that he controls what man does, then God would be writing off and condoning sin. When a man sins and does something wicked, you could say in the Calvinist line of thinking, God decreed that. He made that happen. I don't want to be near that. But people jump right into it because they only see one, one side of the coin. If God chose those who would go to everlasting life, the other side says he chose those who he would hold to the standard of belief but take away their ability to believe and then condemn them. That's not a righteous judge. That's corruption. They don't, they don't ever see that side of the coin. And many Calvinists, when they do, they're uneasy. And one of two things happen. They silently question God or they stop evangelizing altogether. Because the logical conclusion is, I don't have any part in it. God's going to save who he's going to save. I'm just going to keep doing me. I heard a quote one time. It's like, don't be mad that God chose. Be happy he chose you. <laughs> Man. What does that sound like? I'm chosen. You're not. Wow. Anyway. Look in Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed. It's a qualifier. And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? There's no step here of any type of volition. Where's the volitional sub, uh, submission? It would be the same as saying they agreed with the truth. They heard, they believed. 
And how shall they hear without a preacher? Look at verse 17. So then, belief or faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. You hear the word of God taught or you read it. You come to the conclusion that it is true. You are saved. That's how salvation happens. But the Reformation, the, the Reformation redefinition <laughs> says, no, there's got to be submission. Does there? If an element of faith is submission, then how can a person's faith be measured? I mean this in the most serious, respectful way. How can a person know they are saved if an element of submission is required to prove it? Three words. By their works. That has to be the conclusion. Let's say a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ and they suffer a massive stroke. They're in a coma for the next, I don't know, several years in a vegetative state. Does that person have any way of measuring their faith? If there has to be some type of submission or volition that is seen by men, it's got to be seen by men, is that person lost? It's the same silliness of a person who can't speak, and we say, you've got to confess with your mouth. And then you go to that person, and they, don't, they can't. Are they excluded from salvation? What about those who cannot hear? Because it says hearing. So there's no other way that a person can get saved. They have to hear it. Can they read it and understand it? Mm -hmm. You're going to see in Acts chapter 8. Oh, you're going to see in Acts chapter 8. This is the fastball down the middle. Base is clearing. You're going to see exactly what this teaches. I have a quote here that I want to read to you, and I know it's small. But it's by our buddy, not buddy, John MacArthur. And this is what he says. Faith encompasses obedience. Modern popular theology tends to recognize notia and often ascensius, but eliminate fiducia. Why? Why is there an elimination of fiducia? Because it is ascension. It is agreeing with the truth. If you were to define faith, it would be knowledge, understanding, and faith according to their definition. You've repeated the definition of the word in the word. That's why they say there's, a, there's an exclusion of it. Why? Because they're saying you've got to have this too. I learned about synonyms way long ago. And you know what? When you say obedience, it's synonymous with what word? Works. Yet faith is not complete complete unless it is obedient man the real there it is the real believer will obey a concept of faith that excludes obedience corrupts the message of salvation it's brash teaching against the clear teaching of god's word we just looked at ephesians 1 13 romans 4 5 acts 13 38 and 39 and 1 John 5, 13 through 20. And some would say, well, Ephesians, Romans, and Acts is written by Paul. Ooh, I wonder who wrote 1 John. Was it Paul? It was Peter, right? There was a guy named John. What's, what, what about him? John the Baptist? <laughs> no. John the beloved disciple. 
who said very clearly in chapter 20 of his gospel, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the whole purpose. You know, Paul's apostleship is continually being attacked, even today. In our YouTube comment section, somebody comes in there in their virtual suit and tie and says, we can't trust what Paul says. Well, great. I'm so glad that it's not Paul's writing. It is the Holy Spirit writing through Paul. And this teaching says, a concept of faith, we're right here on, on this line, right here. Where that thing at? Well, it's dying on me. A concept of faith that excludes obedience corrupts the message of salvation. Clearly, he says clearly, the biblical concept of faith is inseparable from obedience. So the standard for the Reformation is that it is not, you cannot distinguish between someone who's saved and someone who doesn't have works. They, they've got to be the same. And if they're not, they're not saved. Obedience is inevitable manifestation of the truth. So I just went through and put those bad boys in red. Now look at this one. This one is where the whole like, you know, mind explosion happened. I did not have enough room on the slide to put his name, but I think his name is Arthur P. Magnus or something like that. I will have this somewhere. Maybe Trent, you can remind me to put this in the description because I want to make sure you see what he's saying. This is crazy. The issue here is that when one turns to something, he must at the same time turn from something. The New Testament turn from this turning away is repentance. Now, on a surface level, if he's talking about the turning being a change of mind, metanoia, ding, 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 you're right. Because that's what the Bible says. You repent to be saved. He implies here the three-pronged definition of faith, the last prong being submission. You see how they get that? Because the Calvinist will look at you and say, I believe we're saved by faith alone. And you'll say, I believe I'm saved by faith alone. And it's like that Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other. You're Spider-Man. No, I'm Spider-Man. What's the difference? One person has a total dif different definition than faith than the other. And that is what you call subtlety. That is what you call, it's the same word, but we mean totally different things. Can you imagine the vice that is around people's necks? There are so many people that are confused, and you know what they do when they look at Christians? They go, they don't know what they believe. I'm just going to teach the Word of God. Plain and simple. Let's continue. It, repentance, on this man's definition, means not just remorse, but a turning around so that one goes in an entirely different direction. Okay, now we're not just talking about a person changing their mind. Now they've got to change direction. Oh, well, what are we doing there? Since we cannot read other people's hearts and discern their true status, listen to this next part, saved or lost before God. We, we, pastors, teachers, get my book, we need to help them measure themselves by God's standard to see if they are in the faith. I suggest that six months of turning from sin and fruit-bearing for Christ may be appropriate evidence for genuineness. Wow! That's in print. I, now, seriously, people will look at this next part, the way I read that, my mannerisms, and they'll attack me as being prideful and, oh, I just want to cast stones. 
The guy, that's the most prideful statement you can make. This is in colleges, and it's in their libraries. People are going to Bible college, and they're hearing this. This is what a lot of churches won't say, but they believe it. Well, how can a person really, we don't really know if they're saved, we don't know how they live. How is a person justified? By faith in Christ. That's it. You get eternal life. That's why the Bible is so explicitly clear about what a person receives. It's a certain kind of life, eternal life. But this guy says six months? Oh, my tummy hurts. I I just marvel at that, you know? That's, That's not Christian teaching. That's not what Jesus taught. Six-month probationary period. You heard it here. This book has been in print since the 80s. The 80s, folks. Making the rounds. Oh, and I'm sure he's got all the degrees and the credits to say, we can trust him. I want to ask a question of you. Here's my big brain, okay? Here's my big... um, He went to Florida Bible College, you know, unaccredited. Let me ask you a question. Is this statement proven in Scripture? Why, if there's a six, why is it six months? There are things I did six months ago, I don't even remember what they were, and I was probably excited about them at the time. Don't even do them anymore. Why is six months the standard? Why not six years? Why not a whole lifetime? But does the Bible prove this out? Was there a probationary waiting period for people to get baptized? Uh Uh-oh. Look at this. Join me in Acts chapter 26. (laughs) Sorry. Acts chapter 8. In verses 26 through 38. I want you to note some things here. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Some page 1159. We are bingo right on time. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back for the next two hours. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Although, I would not mind that, you know. I'd love that. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. I want you to see something here. Philip is the subject and the Ethiopian eunuch. <clears throat> There's also the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, Go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is the desert. And he, Philip, arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. This man was returning, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit, stop, the Spirit said to Philip. This is not Philip going, I ain't got nothing to do. I've counted all my figs, you know. Nothing to do. All the widows are taken care of. I'm going to go to the desert. Let's get some, get some uh, R&R, you know. God prompted him to go do something. And he said this, The Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to his chariot. Old language for, Go meet the man. And he does that. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandeth thou what thou readest? 
May I have your eyes for a moment? Understandeth. He's getting the knowledge. Does he have the Latin ascensius? Has he believed it? Does he agree with it? And he, 31, said, this is the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, how can I except some man should guide me? He needs help. He's saying, I see what's being said, but no comprende. I don't understand. So is he now, you're disqualified. Call me back when you understand. And Philip ran away. No. Well, I'll see you in six months, buddy. Here's my cell phone number. (laughs) No. You know what a good man does here? A man of God makes it clear. Makes it clear. 32. Or at the end of 31. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. I was like a little, uh, you know, sit here. (laughs) Let's go through this together. 32. The place of the scripture which he read was, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. Where's he at? Isaiah 53. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, I'm asking you, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? He says, I get what he's saying. Is he talking about Isaiah, the writer, or is he talking about somebody else? And look at 35. And Philip opened his what? His mouth. What happens when you open your mouth? Well, you know, a lot of things can happen. But usually you're going to speak something. Hello, this is who it is. It's not Isaiah, it's somebody else. He does that. How do we know? Well, the scripture is very clear. And began at the same scripture to preach unto him Jesus. Remember, this man lacked understanding. He sought it. Philip met the need and specifically taught him about Jesus. And 36, as they went on their way, there came unto a certain water. Ooh. All right, so we don't know really what happened between the preaching of Jesus and this coming up on water, a body of water. Yeah, we do. The man got understanding. He ascended to the truth. He believed. Well, does it say it? If you have an NIV, no, it doesn't. This is shocking to me. I remember coming here at uh, uh, a teaching of Hank Lindstrom's, and he showed where the NIV removes these next verses. And I thought, on whose authority? Seriously. Who said you can do that? <sighs> Crazy. Anyway. And as they went on their way, there came under, uh, unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He knew enough about baptism was going on. And what does Philip say? If thou believest with all thine heart. Now it doesn't mean like, you know, the animated version. Oh, the way I feel here. You know, heartbreak, you can feel that. But that doesn't mean you get saved by this thing saying, I believe. The heart is talking about here. Your mind, the seat of man's intellect. If you, Ethiopian eunuch, believe with your mind, thou mayest. Stop. Back it up. I suggest that six months of turning from sin and fruit bearing for Christ may be appropriate evidence of genuineness. 
But the Holy Spirit said, through the teaching of Philip, if you believe, you can get baptized. No probationary period at all. Why? Because when a person believes, they are imputed with the righteousness of God at that moment, not by their works. And if there's a problem with that, you can talk to God. (laughs) He's the one who ordained it this way. Look what it says. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you understand how he would come to that conclusion? Because that's the prophecy in Isaiah 53. The Messiah is going to come. It's not that he did not believe that Jesus died for his sin. Obviously, there were teachings of Jesus. He just left Jerusalem. The place is on fire with Christianity. That is the verse right there, 37, that is not in NIV. You will actually see, it'll skip and go to 38. And you're in ESV, doesn't have it. Oh, hey. Let me tell you something just real clear. We are not fanatics here for the KJV. We just know what the other versions are doing. Thank you for that. I sincerely appreciate that. You'll see it's a skip, 37, and then there'll be some da-da-da-da-da. Well, you know, and this and that and that. It's not there. Well, then you should probably take that version and not use it. <laughs> but here's what it says. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And as soon as they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. He's gone from him, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way, what? He's happy. Why? He's got eternal life. Isn't that cool? We're going to close here in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 and 21. How many of you are learning something new today? Did you raise your hand? I sincerely appreciate that. When I prepare these messages, when I pray for these services, I pray for you. Because, guys, there, there is active lies and subtlety out there and it's so subtle and we see it people are are broken by this stuff and you only hear the boastful ones you know we only hear the ones that are willing to fight back but there's people who they'll never they'll never talk about it but they have no idea if they're saved or not because they don't have the uh, volitional submission their faith is not complete galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 page 1243 knowing knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Again, we can understand this word as belief. You believe in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Nobody is going to be justified by a sixth month probationary period if we just follow that logic seriously would they have to go before a board i'm not i'm really not trying to be funny who do they go before that someone looks at them and says you're really saved now approved who does that 
And what, I want to meet that man. I want to see his responsibility in the scripture. You know who it is? The only person who validates the faith of a person? God. Through the belief in his son. But that's not enough for people. See, these Calvinist teachers, they're upset that there are carnal Christians, and I don't like it either. But I'm not going to change what God said to make those people feel bad. That is the work of the devil. Subtle. Ooh, little here, little there. Yeah, we teach faith alone in Christ. Come, come fellowship with us. The next thing you know, two months later, you don't even believe you're saved anymore because you don't have victory over that one sin in your life. Look in 21. Paul's conclusion here. I do not frustrate the grace of God. What does it mean to frustrate the grace of God? Make it void, hollow, ineffectual. How do we do that? For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. We love Christmas. We love Resurrection Sunday. All of that would be useless if we're saved by works. Christ died for what? For what? No reason. The redefinition of saving faith makes it incompatible with the Bible's clear definition of saving faith. You can't have both of them. I'm going to get the screens back here. Oh, hang on. There it is. Let's turn the lights back on and you can close your Bibles. Take a little breather. Speaking to myself, I guess. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here in my office, right? I'm getting this finished up. And then I come in here. I'm listening to the last part of Bob's thing. And my heart's just racing. And it's not because I'm nervous. I'm just so excited to show you what the Bible says. I want you to have this assurance. It's not hidden behind church membership. It's not hidden behind a probationary period. It's made known unto all. And that's what, that's what gets me excited. I'm excited about that stuff. I want you to know because I didn't know these things at once. There was a point in time where I couldn't understand these things. I went to Florida Bible College because if someone were to ask, if someone were to ask me, why do you believe what you believe? I'd say, because that's the church I go to. And talk to my pastor, here's his number. That, that's what I would say. I would know there are some things in the Bible, but there were passages where it was like, don't go to Hebrews 6. Don't go there. Don't go to Hebrews 10. That's the scary one. We don't know what that means. But by the understanding, not of greater terms or anything, by the understanding of the completeness of salvation, I've come to a good understanding of the whole Bible. And I want that for you. I desire that for you. Because it's the greatest peace and assurance. And if we neglect it, we just cheat ourselves on so much. If today is the only day this week that you pick this up and read it, that's a sad week. Read your Bible. Know it. Memorize it. Ask questions about it. 
You got people here that love you and care about answering your questions. And some of you have experienced this. You've popped a question on me, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Let me get back to you. I'll do my best to get back to you. But that term, saving faith, we've got to understand what it means. And there may be some people here today that have no idea if they've believed enough because they're looking at some definition of works to validate their belief. Let me show you with this illustration how you can know that you have everlasting life. If this hand right here represents you and me, my wallet's going to represent sin. I put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God, he loves us very much, but he does hate this sin. It separates us from him, and there has to be a payment for this sin. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. That's how serious sin is. There's not one bit of sin that can enter into heaven. When people say you have to be a good person to get to heaven, you're not going to a good heaven. You're going to a perfect one. Perfection is required, and we all fall short. Revelation 21:27 says, the person that makes an abomination or makes a lie cannot enter in. How comfortable are people with lying? There was a debate this past week where it was like, uh, <laughs> it was three hours long, and guess what? If you wanted to see if any of it was true, you might have missed church today. You'd still be checking stuff. There's a lot of deception out there, and people are okay with lying. But you know how you end up doing something abominable? You start with lying. It's not what degree of sin is able to enter into heaven. None of it is accepted. So then people will teach, you've got to trust on Jesus, or excuse me, you have to turn from your sin, trust in him, and do something else, which is what we just studied today. Yeah, you can have the knowledge and believe it, but you've got to show it in order to really be saved. That's works. We're not saved by any works because if we were, then we'd have spot to boast. Fall short. We need a Savior. This hand represents, for the sake of the illustration, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, what? Believeth. In who? Him. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's saving faith. You take faith, you put it in Jesus Christ, you're saved forever. But what if I mess up? Well, God's a really good spiritual father, and he will discipline you. And in some cases, he may even take you home. The Bible says now those who have believed are the temple of the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 3, you read a little bit about that. You defile this temple, you're subject for destruction, not eternal. You'll, you'll die here. Are there decisions believers can make that ruin their bodies? That ruin their testimony? Does that mean they're not saved? Salvation issues taken care of. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You believe, you're counted, your faith is counted for righteousness. You're forever a part of the family of God. Isn't that good? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed. And eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around just for privacy. We don't want to get into an emotional thing here. But maybe you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, I, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I, I thought, you know, if I messed up enough or I've, I've got to keep doing something to be saved. But I understand now 
that if I put my assurance or my confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that I will have eternal life. So today I believe I believed on Jesus Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. If that's you, I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. That doesn't make you saved. It just lets me know that you believed. You understand. So I want to pray for you. Anyone before we close? God bless you. God bless you. You can put your hand down. Folks, I say again, praise God for the one that trusted Christ today. It's a good day. Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. Do you know somebody who's caught up in this type of teaching? This type of teaching that tries to make faith something that the Bible says it is not? Would you pray for those individuals and then prepare yourselves to help them reach clarity? And recognize that there are subtle and, and, and deceitful ways that are actively trying to change your mind about what you already know is true. Pastor, how can I know? Know your Bible. Know it. Father, thank you for the time that we have today. Please bring us back here safely for the evening message. Thank you for the one that is indicated by a lifted hand that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a good day to be here and see that. Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.